We all have a role we must play. Apathy is the enemy of today. In each of our places and with some new faces, together we can forge a new way. This is Making Waves, the podcast bringing you water stories from around Australia. We are amplifying the lesser heard voices of Aboriginal people and communities. I am your host, Marnie Island. Together, we will explore the fundamental role water plays in the places we live, grow, work and love. Welcome to the IWM episode of Making Waves, IWM, Inclusive Water Management. This is the final in Series 1, where we will try to bring together many of the repeating themes we've been hearing from so many different interesting perspectives throughout our journey together. Looking to the future and talking about not only what is possible, but how to make it happen. We will be speaking with Matt Burns, CEO of Tongarong Land and Waters Council, board member at Greater Western Water, and member for the Metropolitan Region of the First People's Assembly of Victoria. We chat with Brody Hamilton, Melissa Kennedy and Erin O'Donnell, who are the co-authors of Water is Life, which is a roadmap towards traditional owner access to water in Victoria. And we contemplate how effective community engagement can enact change with Ross Allen and Tony Meek. We also bring you one of the final messages from our future water managers and the last of the song treats from Mark Cole Smith's Collagey album. And as a special parting gift, we're going to leave you with an extended play from our beautiful theme music by James Harridan. It's a jam-packed episode, so let's get started. First up, here's Matt Burns. Our conversation today is taking place in Yarraville, which is on Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Bunurong country. We acknowledge that these lands and waters were never ceded and we pay our respects to the Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Bunurong elders, past, present and emerging. Today, I'm pretty excited to be yarning with Matthew Burns, who wears quite a few hats. Matt is a proud member of the Tongarong Nation and Chief Executive Officer of Tongarong Land and Waters Council. He's also a board member at Greater Western Water and a member from the Metropolitan Region for the First People's Assembly of Victoria, which is the voice for Aboriginal communities who are building on the work of Aboriginal leaders of the past to support Aboriginal communities through the treaty process in Victoria. <laughs> Matt, I'm sure that's just scraping the surface of uh, your involvement in water. Could you perhaps tell us, with all your influential hats you're wearing today, what your water journey's been? Thanks, Marnie. Um, my water journey? I. I've had an affinity with water growing up as a little kid. Mum and Dad used to always take me up to country when I was little to, to interact with what was often water, waterways, um, something that was really special to me and, and more for me now in 
in a role supporting you know Tanarung people. We play a role in, or our obligation to country is to care for country. And one of the things that we're we're focusing on doing is building capacity of Tanarung people as a collective, so that we're able to influence the way that country is managed, water is managed in in Tanarung country. And we do that through another number of ways. And at the moment, we've completed the water chapter on Tanarung's country plan, and that's specifically talking about our goals, aspirations, objectives, and I guess pathways to how we can actually achieve those things uh, within our water chapter. And that's been uh, a a number of years of work to get us to that point, uh, to get not only that message of what we're trying to articulate to to water entities and and the broader community, but to get that collective view of Tanarung people and what we're trying to achieve as a collective. We've done that through a a number of ways, and one of them that you may be familiar with is Aboriginal waterways assessments, and and they're focused on Tanarung healing knowledge, partially to read country, but also to heal knowledge. So bring the community together, use that collective knowledge of country, our knowledge of reading country to support each other, to to have an understanding of country and a holistic view of country, which is something I think is often missed in the way country is managed. We, Tanarung as a collective, our, our role or our responsibility in the water space extends to the fact that we own water rights within within the water industry. And it's something that I personally don't like the use of the term ownership of water, but Tanarung owns some water in the King Valley and also the Rubicon Valley at the moment. And, you know, we've made a conscious decision as traditional owners, instead of using the water or selling the water for profit, we've donated water to the environmental water holder for the last couple of years in a row, which has supported the environmental flows within the King Valley, at least doubling the entitlement of environmental water. And I guess that extends to our partnership as well with the Victorian Environmental Water Holders. So we play a role through our water entitlement and try to to influence the way that water is delivered on on Tanarung country. Further, as as a traditional owner group and as my role as CEO, we've worked uh, really hard with catchment management authorities and other water entities to ensure that Tanarung's voice is at the table. And over the years, it's been, been an interesting journey. It's been a journey of participation and participating on the terms of water entities and the way that they view our participation and then it's evolved into us moving towards a more self-determined partnership kind of approach around really understanding deeply Tanarung's values and how we want to manage country and then the engagement is from that position rather than a water entity's position around what they're trying to achieve and then how can we participate through that lens. So. That's been exciting. So in, in Tanarung country, we've got three catchment management authorities that we engage with and have been working on varied levels or different levels of engagement and different approaches to ensure that we're getting where we want to go. Uh, and then moreover, uh, in my other professional capacity, I'm a board member on Greater Western Water Corporation, which is a, a water entity that delivers drinkable water and, 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 and all, all the pipe works associated with, with water uh, reticulation. Uh, and previous to that, I was a board member of Goulburn Valley Water Corporation and they were a similar regional corporation. I think what we've just talked about from the Tongbrong perspective is amazing. That's absolutely where I think the industry needs to go. But in those roles you've talked about at Greater Western Water and Goulburn Valley Water, what do you think the biggest challenges are for understanding and recognition of Indigenous water rights in those types of traditional water corporation entities? 
first and foremost, there needs to be a genuine understanding of what traditional owners are actually after. And I, I tend to think that water corporations and other entities look through their own lens around what are their programs works, what are their projects that they're wanting to achieve, and then how do they interact with traditional owners through the lens of their project, rather than actually having a deep understanding of what traditional owners are actually after. The real challenge in the traditional owner space is the, the resourcing that we've never been given to be able to articulate that objective and what are we trying to achieve. From a Tunnerung perspective, we've gone from speaking about what we're actually trying to achieve and evolving into the continuation of it using our voice, but also doing it through the development of strategy and policy documents and programs, uh, water programs to ensure that when we articulate what we want, we can back that up with clear strategies about where we're going as well and how we're going to get there and how we need our water entities and other partners to help us on that journey. You know, a lot of traditional owner groups haven't been you know, fortunate enough to, to get that kind of resourcing and, and one of the foundational things that needs to be done and, and a challenge is giving the space for, for traditional owners to, to articulate what they want. As I said, a lot of the time it's more around project-based funding and delivery of projects that are more associated to the water corporations themselves. So that, that is one fundamental challenge. Other challenges I think are lack of water um, one of the, and that's a re reality mm. that I don't think other people or not a lot of people understand that in the the urban metropolitan region there you know as things are going with population growth and with the use of water at, at current uses there, there's not going to be any water left in a few years time based on the current models so water corporations and the water industry are focusing on resilience and other things to kind of secure water into the future but it's a real challenge so the the want to incorporate traditional owner or you know aboriginal water into the system is something that needs to be done but there probably needs a bit more of a systemic review into the whole water system to enable that to happen and not just apply aboriginal water rights on top of the existing structure because all it's going to do from a Tanarung perspective and I know some other traditional owner groups feel the same way is this going to put more stress on our waterways and, and destroy country which is something that you know is fundamentally against the principles of how traditional owners want to manage country. It leads into this next point around your role with the First Peoples Assembly of Victoria and where treaty might take us and I guess the future of water management. Yeah treaty is a big one. Uh, yeah. For me and, and something I probably haven't mes men mentioned in, in detail is the, the water system. I have a view that the way the water system works, it, it, it works, so there's, it's not to say that it doesn't work, but it's, it's, it's managed in isolation and it's actually compartmentalised greatly. And when you're wanting to change something from a traditional owner perspective around holistic management of country, and in that includes water, when we have engagement with different entities around what we're trying to achieve, the entity that we speak to has delegated authority to deal with one part of the value chain of water or one part of the value chain of a holistic kind of management regime and therefore we're restricted and encumbered to be able to manage country the way we want. When I think about the water industry and some you know listeners will be familiar with this but the, the delegated authority whether it be through legislation, regulation or statute there are all these different entities that play in the water space and that, that's the minister that's um, DELP, that's the wholesaler, so someone like Melbourne Water or Goulburn Murray Water on Tunnerung Country, that's the water corporations that deliver reticulated water and do treatment facilities, so the, the farms that kind of manage waste. You've got 
catchment management authorities, you've got the Victorian Environmental Water Holder, you've got the EPA, you've got the Department of Health, you've got uh, the Essential Services Commission that kind of overlay pricing and stuff like that as well. So there's this broad kind of suite of entities that perform individual isolated functions and that's part of the real challenge when you're trying to make change at a holistic level. There's a real barrier there. So when I think about treaty for, for traditional owners and Aboriginal community, I think a little bit broader than that and I think a lot of the First Peoples Assembly are as well. We're thinking about the greater good because the greater good for our people will be the greater good for all people. And the water system review for me is something that we need to take a holistic view of how water, the water system works and, and, and look at it from there first and then work our way back rather than looking at, say, the way water is delivered at the moment and just do a review isolating in, in that area because that's not going to solve the systemic problem that we, we need to deal with. And back to the point of the fact that we might not have enough water in the future and we need to think about ways of dealing with that that requires a holistic review. For me personally, and this is a personal view, not a, not a First Peoples Assembly view, I have a real problem with ownership of water. I, I genuinely think that there, there needs to be a reform in individuals or corporations having a, a specific entitlement to, to water. I think water is too important to country and too important to the lives of people to have delegated ownership. And, and I, you know, I feel as though that there should be a change in the way well, conceptually how, how water is owned and potentially transitioning to a, a licensed, kind of a, a tenure licensed condition. So when an irrigator or a license holder holds water, they have it for a five-year term or a 10-year term, and they have to actually demonstrate efficiency of use of water. And then at that review, they need to you know, demonstrate their, their efficiency of use and the benefit to the broader community and, and I guess, managing for, for, for environmental reasons. But it will also provide the the flexibility for, you know, in a future treaty, hopefully traditional owners and the state government together making decisions and having that flexibility to pivot based on the impacts we're having on environment as well. And that's that's something that, well, you know, I'm really interested in pushing as, as you know, if I play a role continuously in the First Peoples Assembly. Thank you so much for speaking with us today, Matt. We also, we always like to um, round these conversations up with the question, the hard hitting one, what's your favourite water song and why? My favourite water song is God Willing and the Creek Don't Rise by Ray LaMontagne and, and why is, I, I was thinking about this and I mentioned before, I was thinking about the different water kind of songs that I know and I had a lot of them but ones that didn't really resonate and God Willing and the Creek Don't Rise by Ray LaMontagne is a, it's a saying from South, Southern America and it's around, you know, I'm going to go out and achieve something as long as outside factors don't stop me. So. It's a commitment to say that we're going to achieve something and I think for me specifically in the treaty space it's, uh, it resonates for me and something that um, you know, I hope that we can achieve as we move forward. That is a beautiful way to end such a valuable conversation. Thank you so much for your time Matthew Burns. Matthew Burns is a truly inspirational leader. He is enacting what we've been talking about throughout this series of Making Waves. It is so great to hear about outcomes happening, not just being talked about. There's quite a bit of what Matt said for us to reflect deeply upon. So let's do that for just a moment while we listen to our final song from Mark Cole Smith's Kalaji album. Here's Walker.
That was Walker. Song six on Mark Cole's Smith's Kalaji album by Heavy Machinery Records. It really has been a treat to have a sonic exploration of country to complement our conversations. Now, let's continue our journey together. Let's hear about a roadmap for recognition of Aboriginal water rights from the co-authors of Water Is Life, Brody Hamilton, Melissa Kennedy and Erin O'Donnell. Our conversation today is taking place on Gadabunud country. We're in Lawn and we acknowledge the Eastern Ma people as the traditional custodians of these lands and waters which have never been ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Today we are privileged to be speaking with each of the co-authors of Water Is Life. We'll be speaking with Brodie Hamilton who is the RAP Technical Coordinator with the Eastern Ma Aboriginal Corporation but has also spent time in the Department of Environment, Land, Water and Planning Aboriginal Water Unit at Barwon Water. We'll also be speaking with Melissa Kennedy, a research fellow at the ARC Centre of Excellence at the University of Melbourne. Melissa's a tardy tardy woman from the Murray River country in northwest Victoria and promotes environmental sustainable practices through prioritising and developing traditional ecological knowledges of waterways. She's the co-founder and CEO of the Tati Tati Cajun, an Indigenous-owned and operated not-for-profit organisation. So I can't wait to be hearing from Mel. We also have Dr Erin O'Donnell, who is a research fellow at the Melbourne Law School. Erin is a highly recognised water law and policy specialist who focuses on water markets, environmental flows and water governance. And she is recognised internationally for her research into the groundbreaking new field of legal rights for rivers and the challenges and opportunities these new rights create for protecting the multiple social, cultural and natural values of rivers. Erin has recently completed a consultancy for the World Bank on water markets and their role in water security and sustainable development. I thought maybe we might hear about their water stories first to see how they got all this wealth of knowledge and how they've applied it. Brody, can we start with you? Can you tell us about your and our listeners about your water journey? From a career perspective, um, straight out of high school, Bowen Water, the one of the local water corps, gave me a traineeship, which was great and really threw me into this industry. But I took a lot of interest in the water management, dams, sewage and stuff. So that's where that water interest really, from a career perspective, started. But then, yeah, pretty quickly found myself in the Aboriginal Water Unit. So, yeah, project support officer there for uh, 12 months, working on a lot of the projects and the Aboriginal Water Officer Network. <laughs> and then, yes, yeah, straight into this policy development as the co-author. Wow. So I've had a pretty short career, <laughs> um, but here I am. But my entire life I've lived on the coast or on rivers, growing up in this area, uh, fishing all the time, eeling living on the ocean so my entire life is living on water living around water so yeah that's awesome and what a great spot to be I'm very happy to be down here I must say (laughs) Mel you're at the opposite end of the state in Wujura can you tell us about your water story yeah hi thanks for having me I live up in Mildura so I'm on the unceded lands of Lachi Lachi country where I'm calling in from today and just want to acknowledge that all water is Aboriginal water. So my water story, as with Brody, I, I grew up 
on the Murray River, on the Milu, and I think a really integral part of our identity as river traditional owners is water and we have such a close tie to it to to consider our lives without that connection to water is just something that we don't do so I think all throughout my life there was always that inherent connection to water my path and my journey to get to where we are today I started on as the Aboriginal water officer for Taddy Taddy which is my traditional owner group in 2019 We spent the next sort of 12 months working on cultural flows, this concept that has really come out of the Murray-Darling Basin around how water should be managed on country and what the connection to water management is between traditional owners and waterways. And so using this cultural flows methodology, we focused on a cultural site for us at Magoya Lagoon and developed our cultural flows management plan. And from there, I think we really started to solidify some of our goals, some of our values, started to see a future where traditional owner management and access to water could increase and where perhaps the barriers are that need to be addressed. We ended up creating a, our not-for-profit organisation, so Taddy Taddy Kajan, and Kajan is our word for water, so that's a ah. traditional language word for us. That you know We're really trying to embed language into these legislative and policy conversations because it's, again, part of our identity. Yeah. And so after creating the not-for-profit uh, and being funded through the DELP Aboriginal Water Unit and Water Program, which is where I met Brody, I got the opportunity to become a part of the Water is Life writing team. And so I think this has been a really big step in my water journey. It's given me the opportunity to have some influence at that higher level, at the next level, while also representing traditional owners in the regions all across the state and and getting the voices and concepts from cultural water all the way through to managing country written into the Water is Life document. So it's been a really interesting journey. That's amazing. And I'm just, I'm smiling across the table at Erin. So both Erin and I being non-Aboriginal people, but so wanting to be the best allies that we can be seeing you two and how amazing you are and how you are influencing is really inspirational. Erin can you tell us about your water journey? Sure my water journey has been one of over 20 years in the making. I started out as a wetland ecologist then I moved into the policy sphere so I worked for the Victorian government for a few years. While I was there I was responsible for setting up the Victorian Environmental Water Holder. So this was an entirely new organisation. It really opened up a new chapter for environmental water management. But in doing so, it raised a lot of really big questions. What happens to the environment when you clothe it in a corporate form? What happens to it when you collapse the world around us into nothing more than the largest single irrigator in the Murray-Darling Basin, which is what the Commonwealth Environmental Water Holder has called itself from time to time? or you make the environmental water holder just another market participant. So these kinds of big questions drove me off to do my PhD. And I looked at environmental water managers in Australia and in the US and found very similar experiences. So one of the things that happens when you increase the power of the environment and enable it to become a legal person in the way that the corporate form supports you tend to get 
a bit of a backlash coming through from the community. So on the one hand, people tend to become complacent. So they abdicate their responsibility to care for rivers and to care for the environment. The other thing that happens is that they begin to get afraid. Mm. So this is a legally powerful entity Mm. and the environment, instead of being weak and needing to be cared for, is something that can start to push back. So we see people try and strike back first. Mm. So this evidence base emerged from about 20 years of experience in the environmental water space with different experimentations in the US and in the Australian contexts. What it enabled me to do in 2017 when I finished my PhD, all around the world, rivers started to receive legal rights and people were like, what does this even mean? And how does a river become a person? So, yeah, people were asking, what happens next? What does this mean? And so I was able to say, well, here's a body of evidence that I've prepared earlier uh, that actually helps us understand Mm. what might happen now that rivers are taking on legal personality. And so since 2017, I've been working in that space. Since 2018, I've been working with traditional owners to progress their rights and interests. Mm -hmm. There is an intersection between the legal rights for rivers space and the rights and interests of Indigenous peoples in the sense that many examples of the rights of rivers have been led by Indigenous peoples. Mm -hmm. But it's not a complete overlap. Mm. So in many cases, environmental advocates are doing that without communicating or discussing it with Indigenous peoples. And the work of Virginia Marshall, for instance, shows that it can be a way of further separating, further undermining Indigenous peoples' Mm. rights. So, yeah, I think on both spheres, in both partnership with Indigenous peoples on water rights issues and through this lens of the legal rights of rivers, I've, yeah, really been enjoying working much more closely with Indigenous peoples in lots of different contexts. That is wonderful to hear from all three of you. It's quite mind-blowing what you're bringing to this document. And I kind of feel when I read this discussion paper, Water Is Life, hope there's some concrete proposals in here that can be enacted. Before I ask you how that all came to be, I've just got to call out the elephant in the room. For those that aren't in Victoria, there is another document that is called Water For Life that... Melbourne Water and the three water retail companies in Melbourne have worked on together. Why is one called Water for Life and why is one called Water is Life? Is is that just a mistake? It's absolutely not a mistake. Water for Life was obviously underway before Water is Life came into existence. But one of the first things we did as the writing team was to get together and try and find the unifying concept that would underpin this and on which everything in this document would hang. And the difference for me, and hopefully Brody and Mel will have some thoughts on this too, but the major difference between water for life and water is life is that water for life is very much about how we use water. So mm-hmm. it's a resource framing. Mm-hmm. It says that water is here for people And I understand, I think, what Melbourne Water and the others were trying to do with this because it's they're trying to set out a long-term vision. So they're they're trying to say, water for life, water for the rest of our lives. But it's still that use framing. It's a resource for humans to exploit. Whereas water is life speaks on a number of levels. It is essential for life. It is part of all life. 
and it actually is life and identity for traditional owners. So water is life for us was the unifying concept. Frodi and Mel, mm. I've been splicing in place-based and talking about water's role in the context of a place, which speaks to it not just being a resource for consumption. It seems that we're hearing a lot of that when people talk about country. Can you reflect on that from your perspectives? Yeah, I think when you talk about water being connected to place, I think that is really the heart of at the heart of what traditional owners are trying to explain when we say that we have this connection to our country and our waterways. That water isn't just a resource that flows down the river from one end to the other. It actually lives on country with us and it has this spiritual and cultural meaning to it. You can see the links between this language use, water for life versus water is life. And for traditional owners, we don't see water simply flowing through country to be used as we need it. We see it as living on country with us and has that cultural and spiritual really life, you know, through the creeks, lagoons, waterholes, rivers, oceans, wherever it may be. That place-based element to it really is central to our concepts of being on country, caring for country, being connected to our land and to our water. And I think those sorts of concepts need to be stronger within the way that we talk about and see water management in order to start managing water in a more holistic way. It's not just a resource. It really does live on country with us. That's wonderful. Brody. I see you're deep in thought while you're listening to Mel. What were you thinking? I think it's very important especially when you're talking about the water is life versus water for life. Aboriginal people, at least people of my community, have a very difficult problem separating water as a resource. Mm. The entire ecosystem includes us, includes water, includes all of these things. So that's why water is life, air is life, dirt is life. All of this stuff is... It's all one thing. So the concepts of discussing it as separate resources, even though we have to in our Western life, in our jobs, that gets down to that issue of, yeah, it's it's not a separate thing. It is a being a part of the society. I love that, Brody, and I am going to come back to that concept of separating things out and looking at things in perhaps a Western siloed approach and the problems with that. You're saying in your intro, Brody, it's been a whirlwind ride for you. Did you feel that when you came into and the process that you've developed this document has been self-determination or have you felt that you didn't have that free-ranging ability to write from the heart about what you want? I think at the top we need to accept that it is a government document. It isn't exactly our words the way we wanted them because Mm. there has been many, many hands, many eyes many months of editing through many different people. But I was pleasantly surprised. And I I was in the water unit before I took this job. I was in government and I was still presently surprised about how much freedom we we were actually given to make pretty bold statements and some pretty bold commitments. So, yeah, although we didn't get the freedom that would have been lovely, it's not our document. It is the state government's policy. Yeah on Aboriginal water. So 
But yeah, pleasantly surprised about how much freedom we were actually given. It's a good read anyway. <laughs> if you like reading about water policy, I've got to take that off, I do. I like how you're alluding to in this discussion paper that there, there's mooted and unfettered part two. So the voices you're proposing will come through from traditional owners without that editing. And do you think that's likely to get off the ground? As far as I know, seeing as I'm no longer in the, the water unit or DELP, mm. it seemed to be, yeah, that there, there was quite a lot of support mm. for Indigenous voices, Aboriginal voices yep. to be published unedited. As long as there was nothing illegal or defamatory yeah. in yeah. them, everyone seemed to be pretty supportive of that. That is super impressive and I guess I'm, I'm, I'm glancing at Erin now going 20 years in this industry. That gives me hope because that sanctioning of voices and the, the government in the past really editing the conversation in the space, that shows to me a real change. And in terms of looking to the future and the recognition of inherent rights actually being enacted, not just something that we say in an acknowledgement, but actually being enacted, it seems like that's really happening. So it's, it's, it's pretty exciting, this document, from that perspective. I think we do need to commend the bravery mm, at some absolutely. point. Absolutely. Because it's an uncomfortable space. I mean, we've all worked in government, we've all worked in water authorities. This is not what they are used to and it's uncomfortable. So I think we've got to be gentle, <laughs> but at the same time assertive about moving things forward. So well done, you three, on a really courageous document and well done, I think, to DELP for allowing you to put it together. I think DELP has been committed to the idea of this as a co-designed mm. document since its inception. So Water for Victoria speaks to the roadmap, the creation of a roadmap to increase traditional owner rights and participation in water, I think. Mm. And the intent was always a co-design. And so it wasn't really until they started thinking about, well, what, what does co-design look mm -hmm. like? How do you make it genuine, given the unequal power relations? Yes, Given that government is not going to write a blank cheque for traditional owners to write mm -hmm. water policy, mm -hmm. how do we make that meaningful? Yes. And I think the two elements of Water is Life now really both embed it as a unique contribution to the water policy space, but also show a model for how you step towards a genuine co-design that can happen in advance of treaty. So... Having a majority traditional owner authorship and having those statements from traditional owner organisations, which we anticipate and hope will mm. be published as part of the mm. final version, sitting alongside the government document as an implicit recognition of sovereignty of those nations, mm. that their voices are heard alongside mm. that of the settler state. I think that is a, a really important model for how policy creation should yeah. start to happen. That's such a good point. And I'm just reflecting back to Brody and to Mel. There's just on that point, Erin, as I'm reading through, just because I, I, little things are red flags to me, <laughs> I see things like referencing the methodologies, the cultural flows methodology being a Murray-Darling Basin initiative. And I just, because I've got all that background, I'm just going, not acknowledging that that was a, a cultural flows research project methodology that was a self-determination and perhaps the Murray-Darling Basin Authority taking 
ownership of something, they're just those little red flags that I don't think they're meant. But they're just that whole, let's not fall back into that taking credit for the work that's been done under a self-determination. When it's all good, we want to claim it. <laughs> but if it, if it blows up a bit, no, that was, that was someone else. So there's just those little things that come through in the document that I'm wondering, were they edits that were coming in or were you conscious that those types of little things and you kind of see the bigger picture and go, oh, it doesn't matter. It is a government document at the heart. It is a constrained document. Mm-hmm. It is the document that government was comfortable with. So we worked as hard as we could. Yep to produce the, the policy content that we thought would go as far as we possibly could yeah. for the interests of traditional owners. There are also things that were unavoidable. When the draft Water is Life was launched by the Minister on the 5th of May with traditional owners from across the state, this was the largest gathering of traditional owners to discuss water mm-hmm. um, in many years. And it was a really, really good conversation. At the end of the day when we were able to discuss the content that was in the draft and this was the first time that many people had seen it Mm -hmm. we had to explain all the elements and you'll note that one of the first pieces of the puzzle right up front of that document are the foundational principles Mm -hmm. so principle number one is that a restorative justice approach needs to be used and the reason for that obviously is the historic and ongoing trauma and harm caused by colonisation. But principle number two says that existing entitlements remain protected. So these sit at odds with each other Mm. and the need to protect existing entitlements also makes it very difficult for traditional owners to see a genuine shift. And so, yeah, Mal and I were presenting these to traditional owners and it was not comfortable or culturally safe for Mel to have to report back to traditional owners on that principle because that's one of the constraints of the document. Now, there's lots of reasons why that needed to be there, but traditional owners would not have chosen for it to be there and it is in itself a perpetuation then of Aquinellius. So... It's a constrained document, but it still manages to be bold within those constraints. I think some of the feedback that we got a lot within, you know, our engagements and yarning with traditional owners across the state was that almost an acceptance that, okay, we'll take this small step, but that is not going to be a long-term outcome for traditional owners. That, That can't be accepted when we're talking about restorative justice and I think that's that's completely fair enough as well. And as Erin mentioned, I was uncomfortable with that and communicating that to especially my own traditional owner group when we were doing those statewide engagements. But I think there is a certain level of this is a good step. It is a first step. But it's been followed by a couple of other little half steps and jumps here and there. Do you reckon that that short-term practicality combined with some challenging targets, is, is that, that nice sweet spot of we're not sure how, but this is where we're going? Yeah, I've, I think we tried to reflect that in our actions as well. We had yeah. really clear sets of, you know, what are we proposing and what are the actions? And then how does that action tie in with 
significant outcomes for traditional owners. And so we think that is going to be a really clear way that water corps and natural resource managers can look to water as life and especially tied in with those nation statements at the end and actually see tangible ways forward for increasing traditional owner access to water. So just on that target point, Mm -hmm. and I think Mel's right, we did try, and you can see this in the draft, that there are short-term things that people can achieve and that there are longer-term legal reform options, big changes Mm -hmm. that we're still working to. So Mm -hmm. we don't really know what those reforms look like yet, Mm -hmm. but some of the short-term changes can really help fill in those gaps and help identify the barrier that that legal reform would Mm. actually be trying to overcome. I wanted to quote Ruben Berg, who... What a good person to quote. Yeah, right? (laughs) Told a room full of water authority directors that when you work with traditional owners, you can set a target with them, Mm. but as you get closer to that target, the measure of success is the traditional owners trusting you enough Mm -hmm. to say, yeah, we can see you're making genuine progress. Now the target's out here. Mm -hmm. So the closer you get to it, the further away it becomes because traditional owners can see, okay, you're genuine about this. We're going to trust you to raise the stakes. We're going to keep raising the stakes. That's a fantastic concept because I love that you come at these conversations from a a legal environmental water holder. I come from it, I want to do a water balance. I want to know... If I free up water over here, how can I, you know, transfer entitlements and recognise them and you know, those types of things? Such an interesting space. Mm. Thank you for sharing with us. One more point. Yes. Um, because I know we, we really wanted to cover this. So I wanted to highlight that, to my knowledge, the draft Water is Life is the only government document in Australia that acknowledges aquanullius. So if we're talking about big change, the way we get there is to tell the truth about our water laws. Aquinellius, the erroneous assumption that water belonged to no one when the British invaded, continues to underpin every single piece of water law statute in every jurisdiction in Australia. Every single piece of water law has a section that says the right to control the flow of water vests in the Crown. Now, if we accept that Terranellius and Aquinellius erroneous and illegitimate assumptions, then the Crown's ability to control the flow of water must also be challenged. And that's the very foundation of the settler state water law system. So by acknowledging that, and of obviously principle number two, existing entitlements remain protected, mean that Aquinalius is not actually being addressed mm-hmm. in this document, but we're starting to tell the truth and that's a really important beginning. It's a really great example, Erin. And I'm going to try and knit some of those concepts into something I wanted to come back to and talk to you about, Brody, around when you do place-based, and I'm an engineer, so I like to, I like to know all the facts and figures and then come up with solutions. That's, that's my thing. When we were talking to Nikki at Tayrak about allocations into Tayrak, and we just... When I was looking at the the background information, there would be things like, this is from unallocated water. And that's that real pandering to that existing water entitlements will remain untouched. But it's preventative of that restorative adjustment because, point blank, that's not enough to even restore 
how TARAC would have operated in the past. If, for instance, you're looking at a particular area and there was a couple of small wastewater treatment plants that could produce recycled water that could supply, I don't know, let's say some vineyards and some blue gum plantations, and then they could give back their entitlements that could be used to recognise flows in the river because they don't need their take-and-use licences anymore. That's, to me, where you can start to get really clever about the restorative justice because you're freeing up resource and making best use of all the water resources rather than looking at them in isolation. That's why I get um, get really excited about place-based and that's why I keep banging on about it because we are actually preventing ourselves from doing awesome things by looking at everything in silos. So, Brady, I've been busting to have that conversation for so long. You're nodding. If traditional owners are leading place-based planning on country and inviting everyone to come to the table and share their issues and designing opportunities, is that what we're talking about? Yeah, absolutely. Aboriginal voices should be on top of all of this. All mm. of these opportunities should be put on the table. But at the moment... All the the jargon you just said Mm. is actually a barrier to entry Mm. for a lot of these groups. Mm -hmm. I've worked in this industry. I understood most of what you said. But a lot of groups don't have the resources or knowledge to, one, access that information. That information is... I've worked in it for four years and I still can't read it. Nobody has it. Nobody has (laughs) it. And if you do have it, (laughs) it's hard to read. Mm But yeah, that the access is hard, but the, the knowledge is as hard. Mm. So these discussions where you need to be looking at the whole ality that's not a word. Yeah, yeah uh, I like it though. Let's roll with it. I'm the whole ality. The whole ality. That's not it. a word. But <laughs> of the entire water space, yes. Aboriginal voices need to be at that table. Because exactly like I I champion class A water and it should be used <laughs> and in my local example it could relieve the Barwon River mm, that's of right. a tonne of water and actually give traditional owners a voice in how the river mm. is managed versus it just being a channel for yeah. <laughs> Geelong's town water. Yeah. But that discussion isn't even really being had yet. So Aboriginal people need to be at that table for it to be had, but there needs to be a lot of work to get that knowledge and resources and access to resources. Yes, out because yeah I worked for DELP in the water unit and I didn't have access to half of this stuff so how could a traditional owner group that's under-resourced you know get their head around it. When we talk about place-based I think that's a concept that maybe we had a little bit of pushback initially when we were starting drafting ideas and sort of we had to work around what does that mean Mm -hmm. how does it work in practice but the idea of being place-based and policy and legislation that is place-based really is what we need for the future. And that's the way that traditional owners have been managing water and country and kinship and, you know, all these other aspects of our lives. That's how traditional owners do do things that's place-based anyway. You wouldn't see one group managing all of country across northern Victoria. It would be very specific to each waterhole or each forest. We can all see the value in it. And I think we need to keep pushing these concepts. When you talk about the data and the information and being some of the barriers to traditional owners, the other side of that coin as well is that we shouldn't expect traditional owners to have to get this level of knowledge and expertise 
in order to be a part of the conversation. It should be the other way around. People who work in government, who work in water space, who are water managers, they need to be coming to traditional owners and speaking on the traditional owners' terms because we have 50,000 years worth of history and knowledge of these waterways. And I think that's, that's what needs to be valued over everything. I love that, Mel. And I think that's the respect that we're trying to amplify through these conversations is you have been doing that. And it's not just about cultural practice. The way you operate and think about things is holistic and you're good at it and why would we not defer to that knowledge and experience in doing that? So I'm so excited to hear you guys talking about that but also I really liked your concept around you don't have to be experts. Nobody knows everything in this space and we've got to be comfortable with... No one person, no one organisation knows everything in this space. It's the willingness to bring all of the different perspectives and sit back and listen to the other perspectives that takes us all collectively forward. And that's what I was excited to start to see in this water roadmap. Thank you so much for your time and thoughts, each of you. We always like to finish with the hard-hitting question. What's your favourite water song and why? Yeah, I have two answers though. One might be a cop-out answer, so I'll tell you my other answer first. Um, November Rain, oh, Guns N' Roses. Nice. We have nice. not had that um, yet. Uh, yeah, I, I grew up as a massive hair metal fan. Gunners, yeah, yeah. You know, the hairspray and the ripped yeah, jeans. Yeah. Yep. But no, I mean, in everyday life, I actually absolutely love the sound of rain to the point where wow. I have like playlists on my Spotify of just rain sounds. On the tin roof or Yeah, anywhere? a bit of both. Sometimes it's stormy, sometimes it's tin roof. Other times it's like sounds when water's hitting yeah. like, you know, a river or a lake. I just absolutely love it. And we don't get rain that often in Mildura. When we do, <laughs> I'll, I'll sit outside and listen to the rain. So that's, that's my less fun answer. That's beautiful. And that reminds me of a time in Alice where, you know, precipitation was was good weather that was that was unusual yeah Erin so I have two answers as well oh really a Spotify playlist that was produced as part of the Sydney Biennale which had its theme as rivers Ah. and so the playlist is called the glossary of water and it's got amazing collection of songs from international artists and yeah so in some ways it's a bit of a cop-out because I'm saying Every song about water is my favourite. Um, yeah, I'm not sure we can, yeah. have, we can have that. <laughs> okay, finally, I remembered the other one. Uh, the River by Groove Amada. Ooh, another yep. one we have not had off the cuff. All right, Brady. Smoke on the Water. After a short Google, uh, scream, <laughs> screamed out to me as a song that I do, I do enjoy. Every bass player's dream. Awesome. <laughs> That's wonderful. Brody, Mel and Erin. Thank you so much for your time. It has been an absolute privilege to hear your thoughts and congratulations on Water Is Life, the discussion paper. Can't wait to see part one and part two of the the main deal, the final document. Thank you for having us. Great conversation. Thank you. The future looks incredibly bright with young leaders like Brodie and Mel emerging. It's so great to see Erin amplifying theirs and other voices. And speaking of future water managers, I wonder if there's a few more insights we might gain. 
Hello, can you tell us your name and how old you are? <laughs> I am Roy and I am seven. Hello, Roy. Roy, can you tell us why water is important? Well, if you don't, if you don't have water, you will die, pretty much. And water is very precious. When do you turn your tap on, Roy? Where does the water come from? The water comes from our water tank. It has no filter. We just drink water straight from the rain. Sounds delicious. Is it good tasting water? Yeah. We've got a tiny little funnel on the end of our tap to like, like a sieve to sieve out all the tiny bits of dirt. At the other end, when you flush your toilet, where does the water and the waste go? We just go, it goes into the septic. Mm -hmm. Mm hmm. A septic has two main bits. Yeah, there's um, a system near our garden, which is the grey water. And there's a septic near our house. Wow, you know a lot about water. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else you think we should know about water? Well, some spiders actually walk on water and in the septic near our garden there was a giant spider like that big. Wow. <laughs> like seven inches long. That's a big spider. Was it walking on the water? No, it was just like standing on the wall like... <laughs> And his eyes were really creepy. <laughs> That's fantastic, Roy. Thank you for sharing that with us. I see you have a friend here. What's your name and how old are you? My name is Fabby and I am seven. Hi, Fabby. Fabby, why do you think water's important? Because if we didn't have water, we wouldn't survive. That's true. Where does the water at your place come from? A tank. You have got tank water too. And what about your toilets? What happens to when you flush your toilets at home? I think it goes down to the septic. You've got septic tanks too. Interesting. So you're both country kids, are you? Yeah. Yeah. We, I live in Yandoit. Do you? Yeah. Where do you live, Fabi? On Tipperary Springs Road. Wow. And Tipperary Springs is known for pretty good water. Do you have special water at Tipperary Springs? Yeah, we have fizzy water down <gasps> the springs. Fizzy water? Can you tell us why it's fizzy? Because we get it down from the springs. It comes out fizzy out of the ground, is that what yeah, you're telling me? Yeah, there's a pump, pump down yeah. um, at the hole down at the bottom. Um, yeah, there's like a car park and, and then there's a table and you walk past it and then... Is it a, f um, a, a handle a, that you Yeah, a handle that you pump and then it pumps out. <laughs> yeah, so a lot of people out. come for this special water at the bottom of your road um, and you live right there? It comes yeah, out... Yeah, we can just walk down and get some. Yeah, it comes out of minerals in the ground. Yeah. Wow. Does it do anything special, this special mineral water? E well, it has different sorts of microbes than rainwater, so it's probably healthier. Does it taste different? Tastes different to what? The water that comes out of your tap? Yes. The water kind of tastes a bit salty. <laughs> well now, Roy and Fabby from Dalesford Dharma School have certainly got it all sorted, don't they? Picking up on the very clear need for changing from status quo approaches of water resources management, we need to take a deep breath and have some brave conversations supported by facts. This may seem a bit scary for some, but you can relax, it's okay. There are people who are specialised in creating considered conversations where many differing perspectives can be heard. The yarns we yearn for, authentic, honest, and with equitable involvement, 
let's speak with two highly skilled practitioners of this art form, Ross Allen and Tony Meek. Today we meet again at Abbotsford Combat and of course we acknowledge that this is on Wurundjeri Woiwurrung country and we acknowledge that these lands and waters were never ceded and we pay our respects to Wurundjeri Woiwurrung elders past, present and emerging. I am delighted to be having a discussion today with Ross Allen and Tony Meek. Ross is the Creative Director and Strategic Engagement Specialist at 3C's Agency. We are also delighted to have Tony Meek who's the Community Engagement Manager at Yarra Valley Water. Tony is off the charts brilliant at community relations. So, without any further ado, let's perhaps hear from our guest panellists themselves. Could you each tell us about your water journey? Do you want to start, Tony? I think I've always been interested in the natural environment. I've really enjoyed, even as a little kid, collecting things and having ant farms and pet frogs and all those sorts of things. So... That's probably where my interest has been and it's always stayed. Ross? My water story started as a child as, as well and, and in particular on Noongar country in the southern wheat belt of Western Australia where we had quite low rainfall and quite fragile soil. So I feel like I grew up with an awareness of the preciousness of water and the need to care for country. Well-founded childhood <laughs> that we've, we've, we've tracked into our professional careers. Yeah, so I was, I was reflecting on my, my journey from you know, those, those early days on a farm where it didn't rain very much through to where I am now and also on why and how Indigenous ways of knowing, being and doing kind of became really important to me and I guess set me on a journey of learning and making mistakes and, mm-hmm. and learning in that space. And that was, I, I was working for local government and had the opportunity to work with uh, traditional owners on Minjurabar, um, North Stradbroke Island, up in Queensland. And it was working with the Kwandamuka people there, which allowed me to, to understand lots and lots of things, but, but particularly about the connection we have as people, as humans, with, with water. Ross and Tony, you're so skilled and experienced in effective communication. Can you perhaps share with our listeners what are the essences of, or the keys to effective community engagement? Building up confidence and trust and listening and really using that interaction to really understand where people are coming from and what, what's important to them to help, help us who have to do those sorts of bigger things to plan the right way. And also recognising that people in their own communities are far more expert at their, what's in, going on in their community than we can ever be. And it's a really important thing to value that hmm. and see people like that as a collaborator. How long do you reckon it would take to establish trust? It's a bit open-ended. Hmm. I think it depends on the issue. But I think it doesn't take too long. It's how you approach it too. I think if you go into a conversation and shut up and listen, it's very quick. The flip side of that, how long does it take to eradicate trust? I think that can happen in an instant sometimes. Mm. Uh, and I think that often comes down to an aversion to wanting to be open about issues that might have come up, feeling uncomfortable about it, and I guess being concerned about the consequences. So it's about that party, I suppose, who's worried about it, 
trying to protect their own interests a bit too much and and not seeing that there's other people involved. I'm seeing you looking very thoughtful there, Ross. Yeah, I, Tony, I pick up on your point about re- relationships being being key to engagement, and and I guess my my take on this it's it's relationships, and it's also bringing a, a relational understanding to, to to this work, which is about understanding what sits at the centre of the work that's being done. And I would argue that it's not the project nor the organisation that is leading it. What sits at the centre is country mm. and community. And so any project or initiative or infrastructure is happening in a place and within a community and so to kind of turn on its head to engage about a project to be engaging with community on country then gives a a different place to start. What sometimes happens is and you look at the track record and history of conflicts environmental conflicts and that sort of thing I think it's easy to kind of have a little bit of fear around you know I think we know something might be potentially controversial and then we sort of go into a self-protection mm. mode. Mm. And I think that our thinking is clouded and I think that then creates behaviours that are, are, are likely to be what I'd call risk-averse or controlling or people feeling that if it'll just be the way it is, so we should just get on with it. And, and yet, as we know, when that happens, it can make things much worse mm. and um, the conflict can become more entrenched. So so I think it's really somehow trying to park those thoughts and develop courage. Yeah, I heard two words mentioned recently, courage and vulnerability around things that we're uncomfortable with. Right, so, so if I pick up on that and kind of reflect both on, on my personal kind of background as an engineer, but also reflecting more, more broadly on, on, the, on the water sector, there's a implicit assumption that we have the answers or we can figure it out. And, and so that vulnerability is about accepting that we may not have the answers and being okay with that, being willing to reach out to uh, stakeholders, to reach out to community and say, we don't know but we're willing to go on a journey with you mm. and, and figure it out together. If you've got your relationships with community and your relationships with the traditional custodians right, you've created an enabling environment for change. For me, the, the things, I guess, reflecting on kind of grassroots ad- advocacy and the work in community and stakeholder engagement at the heart of all of this is is people. Mm-hmm. So if we can look beyond someone's role or title mm-hmm. or organisation and see them as human, mm-hmm. that then enables a whole lot of things. And, and for, for me, and without trying to oversimplify it, the first is let's get to a point of clarity. Why am I here? Why are you here? What are we seeking to achieve? Then what is it that we can agree on? Because actually, invariably, there's a whole lot. Yes. Um, we can choose to focus on where we disagree. Yes. Um, or we can we can look for where we have alignment. And, and, and through that and from that, we can then work on connection or building building relationship. Mm. And, you know, there's, there's a whole 
layers to, to that connection, connection to country, connection to community, connection to each other. That has been wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us and with our listeners. We always love to finish with the final important question. What's your favourite water song and why? I'll just say I'm a breakfast at Tiffany's Tragic ah. and I thought of Moon River. Nice. I haven't had that one yet, Tony Meek. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm going to go with a, a Swedish musician called Lucky Lee. Right. And her song, I Follow Rivers. Nice. And it kind of resonates for me because it was, it was shared with me at a time when I was reflecting on the need to get out of my own way. And, and so this idea of kind of being the river, following the Ooh. river, really resonated with me. Deep. Tony Maker and Ross Allen, thank you so much for your time. Most welcome. <laughs> thank you. Very well. Hopefully it's reassuring to hear from people like Ross Allen and Tony Meek for anyone who's feeling a little bit nervous about brave conversations. When I'm talking place-based, I'm thinking about the process for identifying and delivering infrastructure and services that are tailored to the specific needs of a particular community and the traditional owners of that country. But my co-host, Troy MacDonald, has some insights into the additional benefits these processes can deliver. What I wanted to share, there is definitely a, um, a direct correlation between good mental health and good physical health that is linked to good quality water flows. And the example I'll, I'll give, when I was in this job, I, I funded a project up in Harrow up in the Western District and this was a cultural event and it was actually to do a, an environmental water release into this reach of water. So the scientists had all their acoustic equipment in there measuring the happiness of fish and they could tell by the, this that this release made the, the aquatic wildlife a lot happier by the, the pictures in their, their voices. I, I, I'm not an expert on this. But what that the correlation there was, on that release and aligned it with the traditional owners for a cultural event at that site. And there was a direct correlation between the waterway health and the health of the people that attended that because they could sit by the banks, they could tell, tell stories, they could do what, what they're doing. And plus the experience was around some birthing trees as well, which are generally you need healthy water from a cultural perspective to, to do that. And I, I, I reflect upon that from, from the perspective of that, and this is probably interagency stuff, really about, on the one hand, we've got a department framing up policy and strategy around good health and wellbeing uh, by connecting people to country, but there's actually no correlation about working with people at the place-based level around projects like that and actually see it work and see the planning that goes into it and see what the outcomes and the deliverable for that is. You know, you get a couple hundred people around an environment all of a sudden doing hi-fis, eating healthy food, feet in the water, looking at, at things has an exponential positive impact on wellbeing. And I suspect that would not have happened had that, that water release had not occurred. There is so much goodwill to be harnessed. It seems like so many little streams and trickles are starting to link up. We're approaching the point 
where the confluence of ideas creates the energy to make it through any little riffles or rocky rapids we may encounter as we flow into a powerful river of change together. There is a role for everyone to play here. We are all responsible for making waves of change. After all, water is fundamental to every aspect of your life. We need your ripple effect. We hope the Making Waves podcast is a catalyst for change. We hope that we have demonstrated that we can and must have brave conversations without anger and vitriol. We all benefit through the respectful contest of ideas and equitable sharing of power. We don't want change to come like a destructive tsunami, but we do want it to move faster than glacial pace. We thank you for listening and leave you with the full version of our beautiful theme music by James Henderson to contemplate where you will cast your pebble or rock to keep making waves.
extend sincerest thanks to co-host Troy McDonald, producer and special guest presenter Nance Haxton, the Water Services Association of Australia, and the funding partners City West Water, Hunter Water, Icon Water, SA Water, Sydney Water, Taz Water, Unity Water, Water Corp and Yarra Valley Water. Thanks for making ways. Now go cast your pebbles. Series one of the Making Waves podcast was created over a two-year period spanning mid-2020 to mid-2022. The views and perspectives presented are those of the individuals speaking. They do not necessarily represent the views of the organisations associated with individuals or the funders and supporters.